Attention doctors and other healthcare workers and students. MedCon 2018 is coming to Marion University's College of Osteopathic Medicine in Indianapolis, Saturday, April 14th. This year's theme is what does it mean to be a Catholic physician or nurse in 2018? Our keynote speaker, Dr. Jeffrey Berger, is the medical director of the Catholic Addiction Treatment Center in Michigan, who will focus on the current opioid epidemic. Speakers from all five Catholic medical guilds in Indiana will speak on topics ranging from counseling the unborn patient to physician-assisted suicide to management approaches to burnout. Others will clarify the difference between ordinary and extraordinary care and explain the challenges of providing medical care to undocumented immigrants. A special Friday evening student event will give insights from personality research to help them select their specialties. For more information, go to medcon2018.splashthat.com. That's M-E-D-C-O-N-2018.splashthat.com. This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern, Dr. Andrew Mullally, and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be me. Yes, both Chris and Andrew are here. They're going to interview me about medical aspects, about the passion of Jesus Christ, a subject that's been in my heart and on my mind for over 25 years. And I think you'll be... Uh, challenged and edified by some of the things we have to share. Not to mention surprised. Hopefully that too. Life full of surprises is a good life. But we'll also cover some preventive medicine information, some news of the day, a trivia question, and then we're going to answer a patient question. But first, let's look at some recent medical news items. You may be aware that with my 12-year-old sons, I watch Star Trek regularly. We're working our three our cells through the canon. So this article caught my eye on dark matter DNA. You know, they talk about dark matter and dark energy making up most of the universe. I've I've not heard it in relationship to DNA before. That that didn't come up in med school. <laughs> no, not mine either. Uh, no, not mine. It was really dark. Uh, so <laughs> what this is referring to is a lot of people probably don't realize it, but the vast majority of DNA in our genes doesn't code to make proteins. And, you know, in high school and college and medical school, that's what we're taught. DNA is there to tell our body what proteins to make. So why would we have so much DNA that doesn't do anything? Well, you know, according to some numbers, 98.8% of the DNA doesn't do anything. So there's been a lot of research into what they call dark DNA. It's there. Is it extra? Does it mean anything? Well, then within this dark matter DNA, there's a subgroup. You know, we might not realize it, but according to this article, we have something in common with mice, rats, and chickens. Didn't know that, did you, by the stunned look on your face? <laughs> <laughs> I, well, you, you hear these statistics from time to time. Oh, we're so many percent, you know, 80% the same DNA as a frog, you know. Or we're it, one amino acid away from a gorilla. <laughs> yeah, something, something like that. I, I assume, is this, is this kind of that type yes, of DNA? Yes, and they, they've been to our office for hair removal laser, too. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, Andrew. <laughs> is, is this the DNA that they're referring to, this well, dark DNA? Well, a subgroup of the dark DNA are called ultra-conserved elements, and they have identified 481 segments of DNA that are at least 200 base pairs long that are identical, not one base off, identical between mice, rats, chickens, and humans. And I'm not sure what other animals they've looked at. So they've actually done studies with this, and they did one study and this was 10 years ago, where they removed four of these segments from mice, and they expected that the mice would not survive. But they did. They looked normal, and they couldn't figure out, well, maybe it doesn't make a difference. So 10 years later, somebody's done some more in-depth research where they removed four different ones of these parts of the DNA. And guess what they found? Normal. <laughs> <laughs> they looked normal, but... When they did autopsies and looked at the brains, the brains were smaller. Hmm. They had less brain cells. And they thought that if these animals were out in the wild, they wouldn't have been able to survive. And in fact, they had changes in the brain associated that you'd see in human brains with epilepsy, you know, constant seizures going on and on, and that their memory areas were affected. So they finally have shown that these ultra-conserved areas, these areas that are identical with mice 
rats and chickens, actually do something essential so that our brains develop normally. So there's a reason they're there. We just don't really understand it yet. Yes, there appears to be a reason. And for instance, with just this one study, since those elements are the same, now they're going to go back and look and see, does this have anything to do with any forms of human dementia, like Alzheimer's, or with epilepsy or other neurologic diseases? So this is one of those you know, things you hear of, oh, you know, like the myth, 90% of our brain isn't working. Well, that, that is a myth we can cover another time. But uh, another thing is that these play an important role in multiple species. Another study that I found interesting, and this is actually the same date. Both these studies were released in articles on January 18th of 2018. The last one was from the journal Cell, C-E-L-L. Now I go to a five-letter journal name, Brain. <laughs> and so... These are not things I typically read, but the subject of this article is in the news a lot on the sports pages. And you've heard of CTE? Yeah, that's definitely been something that I, I get to talk to parents about, especially of student-athletes. There's such a push now, especially being aware of concussions and yes. future brain damage. We, we see this with a lot of the professional athletes. And, you know, we're only now, I think, really beginning to realize some of the damage, the permanent damage that's done with injuries to the brain. And I think that recent NFL movie, Concussion, you know. Yeah. Did really, you get to see that movie? I haven't seen it. My kids saw it and said it was really pretty terrific. But I think that really increased people's awareness that this isn't just casual talk. This is a real thing. Brains don't like being beat up. Yeah, and CTE stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy. So encephalopathy just means a, a disease of the encephalocele or the brain. And so it means that there's chronic damage, chronic hits. And this study did something new. They looked at four deceased male football players who were 17 or 18 years old. And they were able to do pathology, look under the microscope at sections of their brain. And all four of these died one day to four months after a sports-related head injury. Never before had they looked at brains so young for CTE. And something they found was extraordinary. One of them had actual diagnostic changes of CTE, which you think you will only find in a pro football player. We're, we've always been kind of assuming, I guess, this is still a relatively new thing that we're talking about, but we always thought it was dose-dependent. You get hit more. You right. know, you, you have the, at least I, I have the image of Muhammad Ali. Oh, punch with, drunk. Yeah, the, the Parkinsonism mm -hmm. pugilistica or... I think that's the correct yeah. name for it, just from getting beat up so much in the ring and then developing all these symptoms later in life. But it's surprising to hear this happens even in young athletes. And what they discovered, because they said, wow, could this be happening this soon after head injuries? It's not years after, but it's a day to months after. And what builds up in the brain is something called tau protein. And the tau protein, which is like the Greek letter for T, um, is normal in the brain, but sometimes it gets, the medical word is phosphorylated, it gets changed, and then it builds up and forms these tangles that we see in, in Alzheimer's disease. So it's the same kind of thing we see under the microscope in Alzheimer's. Now we know what's happening to young kids. And what the, one of the fascinating things in this study they showed is that you never need to have a concussion to have CTE. It's just the cumulative number of hits. So in the past, it was just, oh, you have so many concussions, and then you should be out of sports. Is that right, Andrew? That's, I mean, that's the current, I say current, I mean, even in the last few years, this has been changing drastically, both in pro sports and youth sports. You get a concussion, now there's this dramatic protocol that you have to return to play in a stepwise fashion a little right. bit at a time. And they're trying, to, they're trying to prevent that second hit phenomenon, right? Yeah. It's that second hit on a fresh concussion. Well, and I think the thought is, is it safer? But it, it sounds like it might not be. At least from this data, it sounds in question anyway, doesn't it? It does. And if you just turned in, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio. You know, I think my children are soccer players, and we've been sort of a soccer family. And now there's new regulations about youth and heading the soccer ball. Oh, really? Because you think it's just a ball, but it's actually a big hit to the head. And the recommendation now, I believe, is under the age of 12 – they shouldn't be doing headers with the soccer ball. You know, I can't even 
watch, bring myself to watch pro football or college football now knowing the level of damage, the lifelong changes that are happening in these people? Is it really worth it? It's, I, it's a tough one because I know there's a lot of, you know, especially the student athletes, a lot of these folks, I mean, sports is such a huge part of life and in the, in the American culture, but really I think in all cultures, sports is a huge part of it. How do you balance, you know, your child's safety with letting them, you know, let a kid be a kid. And if, if they want to play sports, I think there's got to be, there's got to be something done to, to look at not only the safety of things like football, which is really what we're talking about most commonly, but even things like soccer and other low impact sports. I mean, if you think about every hit to the head could be causing this damage, it's hard to figure out a a common ground. But what a challenge when science and culture find themselves against each other, right? I mean, how can you, <laughs> there's nothing more uh, classic American culture than football, and the harder the hits, the better. Yeah, the um, tougher, right? Somehow it's superior. Whether it's football or whether it's hockey. I mean, hockey games are organized fights and crashes, uh, yeah. and that's what we love to see as a culture. But it really does call into question, what are we doing with our kids and their brains? That's right. We went to a fight, and the hockey game broke out. <laughs> okay. It makes me think of all the times that my wife said to one of our kids, what, are you brain dead? And, you know, it turns out maybe maybe there was some damage there. Well, Let's transition to Andrew. He's got a preventive medicine tip of the day. Hi, yes, I I am here with the usual USPSTF recommendation of the day. And the one I'd like to evaluate today is on statin medications. The recommendation is that statins be given for certain people, and this is a long one, so I'm going to read it. The USPSTF recommends that adults without any history of cardiovascular disease, no stroke or anything like that, use statins if all of the following criteria are met, they're at least 40 to 75, they have one or more risk factors such as diabetes, smoking, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, and then they have a 10-year risk of having a cardiovascular event like a heart attack greater than 10%. Now, that's a mouthful, and it probably highlights the confusion there is around statin medications. Is, is there a change in this, or is this the way that docs have been doing it? You know, I think there is a change. There's been a lot of changes in statins because now the current recommendations are even moving away from the specific number that your cholesterol is at and more risk-based stratification. So if you have risk factors, the the recent estimates would be if you follow the most up-to-date recommendations, maybe a third of all adults would be on a statin medication, which is a huge amount. And a lot of people rightly question, you know, do I really need to take this? I'm 40. Maybe my cholesterol is a little high, but should I really take a medicine every day forever? And there's a lot of things that people hear about statins because they're so common, they hear about many side effects. So my top three things that you need to know have a lot to do with statistics. So I want to introduce a new idea tonight about the number needed to treat. Very good. Are you guys (laughs) familiar with that? I am. I, I got hit pretty hard with some of this stuff in med school, but I really took to it. I liked it a lot. The number needed to treat is the idea of how many people need to take a medicine every day to prevent a problem. In this situation, how many people have to take a statin every day to prevent a heart attack? And that number for statins is about 250. So in medical terms, that's not an awesome medicine. Many medicines that we use to treat, you know, either infections or even other diseases they're usually less than 100 people, and many of them are even in the, the two-digit range. 15 people need to take this, and you're sure you're helping prevent a problem. 250 is pretty bad, and, and you juxtapose that with the number needed to harm. How many people need to take ah. this before one harm is done? And for statins, it's 21. And what are the harms? So the most common harm would be muscle cramps, right. myalgias, and there's pretty good evidence that some damage is done, but there is also a questionable risk for even dementia and diabetes. Now, that's been gone back and forth in the data extensively, and I think it's inconclusive, but it's it's one of those things that, you know, the benefit of preventing a heart attack is great, but 250 people need to take it. The harm of muscle cramps is small if you stop the medicine, but one in 20 people are going to have it. So it, it really brings us to, I guess, my my second point, which would be that this is for people who have never had a heart attack. There's pretty good agreement if you had a heart attack or a stroke, you should have a statin. But for people who have never had a heart attack, this is where the, the confusion lies. Is that risk worth taking? 
one other thing, I guess, to give context, uh, one of the things that I see a lot of times quoted in the literature is the number needed to treat regarding seatbelt use and deaths in car accidents. Ah, Because that's something that we all endorse, sure. wear your seatbelt, of course. It's even legislated. So what, what would you guys guess is the number needed to treat? How many people have to wear a seatbelt every day forever to prevent one death in a car accident? I'm going with less than 250. I'm saying 1,000. Most estimates are over 25,000. 25, yeah, it's high. So 25,000 people have to wear a seatbelt every day to prevent one death. And we can all get behind that, but the risks are not as great as with Correct. medications. And then my, my last point, I guess the take-home point, is you definitely want to talk to your individual doctor about this and screen for risk factors and cholesterol levels. When you get down to the individual, it's a lot clearer because based on their family history or based on the levels of their cholesterol, if they're quite high, that would push us in one direction or another. But diet and exercise are free, and they are probably going to have beneficial effects not only on your cholesterol, but yes. also on your mood and wellness. So I would start there, and if anybody is a statistics geek like me, they can check out the NNT dot com number needed to treat and it's a good resource for this Thank you know, listen, you, listening to that andrew i think we're reminded of just how critical a relationship with your physician is it's not an app it's not a calculation it's a relationship where you have to talk about yourself your family your risk your lifestyle and that just doesn't happen with an app does it well and if if you move away from individualized decisions and everybody gets the same thing you're going to have more side effects. So mm. I, I completely agree. You've got to make a decision that's best for you with your doctor. Thank you. That's great information. And right before the break, the medical trivia question of the day. And today's question is, what is a bezoar? Yes, B-E-Z-O-A-R. And where would you find it and what should you do with it? So this is Dr. Doctor signing off just for a short break, and we'll be back with information about the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your host, Dr. Chris Stroud and Dr. Andrew Mullally discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. And today, we are very excited to have our own Dr. Tom McGovern here to discuss with us something that he's been very passionate about, the passion of the Christ. And especially in this time of Lent, we were hoping that this would serve to be a good, uh, good topic that we can all meditate on as we approach, hopefully, Easter Sunday. And so, Tom, how did you first become interested in, in something I guess we, we're all aware of, but how did you get interested in it from a medical perspective? I guess in medical school, I spent more time reading theology than I did medicine, although I still did very well. I know what I'm supposed to know. I, I know the, the parts of the body I operate on anyway. But I was teaching sixth grade catechism class during my first year of med school. I guess I didn't have enough to do. And I wanted to teach them during Lent something about the passion. So I went to a professor of mine who was teaching our pathology course. And this was in March of 1986. I said, Dr. Edwards, do you have any information on the passion? He said, yes, I'll have something for you tomorrow. And we knew he was a Christian professor, so he'd probably have something good. So the next day after class, I went up to him and he handed me an article. And I said, wow, this is great. It's called On the Physical Death of Jesus Christ. And then I looked closer. It hadn't been published yet. It was supposed to be published a week later. It's like, how did you get this? And I looked closer. Oh, he was the author. <laughs> See, that's incredible because I think a lot of our listeners probably don't appreciate that's an article that's really quite famous and it's been circulated through Christian healthcare literature for you know, some time annually. Yeah. And so it's amazing. Oh, yes. you, you knew this guy personally. I actually uh, did my third year, six month research project uh, with him. He was a, a cardiac, a heart pathologist. So we did a study on coronary angioplasty. But during that time, he let me have access to all of his research which was a blast. And then I started giving talks then, and it, it morphed into this whole audio-visual musical thing that I used to do, but which I stopped doing about 10 years ago because I started to doubt some of his findings. Really? What, what caused you to, to doubt? Just more experience clinically? or? Uh, I have not yet treated the crucifixion victim. 
Fortunately, well, this is good. Yeah, that, is, that is good. Uh, but uh, just reading what other people had done in, in research, uh, particularly a, a coroner, a medical examiner from uh, Long Island uh, named uh, Frederick Zugabe, may he rest in peace. And some of his work and other work I read made me doubt some of the things that Dr. Edwards had published, primarily because Dr. Edwards had relied on other people who I then went back and read all the original work, didn't really substantiate some of the things they said. They just said it because they thought it was true with no evidence. That That's not really reassuring if you're going to speak, especially on something so foundational as the passion. And there are many people speaking about this now who use that article as gospel. I mean, he's an outstanding individual. He did great work, and he trusted the literature that he had. But I decided to go back and do something that no doctor has done before. And that was uh, because of an article that came out in about 2006 or seven in um, England, the Journal of the Royal Society of Medicine. The author said that, you know, we read all these articles about it, but nobody has gone back to the original Greek and Latin and read kind of the, the primary sources. So I started looking, and lo and behold, about this time, a Catholic had just published a book called Crucifixion in the Mediterranean, and he reviewed every single Greek and Latin uh, uh, line about crucifixion he could find going back to the first ones about 594 B.C. And do you think that are, – are we so interested as a people in the mechanics of crucifixion because Christ's method of death – is so fundamental to the understanding of Christianity, uh, or is it an is it an effort to to scientifize religion? I give that question a lot of thought. I mean, the sorrowful mysteries of the Rosary, of course, we're supposed to, you know, meditate, contemplate what Christ went through, and you know, I think the best answer I have to that is, you know, when you fell in love with your wife, you wanted to know everything about her what she thought about things, how she saw things, what her history was. And I think we're not supposed to be in love with anybody more than with Jesus Christ. Mm. So it's something he did for us. So in one sense, we should want to know everything we can about him. But to the minutest detail, no. In fact, one of the things that a lot of articles do is they try to figure out, okay, exactly where in the wrist did the nail go through? And then what nerves did it affect? And what was the exact position of each of the five fingers on that hand? I think that is not a very helpful Thing. So uh, in the course I wrote, in the talks I give, I don't, I don't think that's very helpful to go into. But to understand what this terrible torture was to some extent, I think, is helpful. Can we get to heaven without knowing it? Absolutely. You know, I, I have to think about the first time I watched the movie The Passion. Mm. Uh, and I'll have to say that was faith-changing for me for a couple of reasons. One is it just gave you a, a much better sense of we're talking about torture. Yeah. Uh, and, and as a more casual Christian before that, I don't think we ever really thought about, you know, Jesus died and rose again. I mean, it sounds nice. It's simple. It's straightforward. It fits in a sentence. But we're talking about <laughs> days of torture. Yes. Uh, very, very professionally carried out torture. And, and I think that's a that changes things a little. At least it broadens your perspective of why would God become man and allow himself to endure such a horrific torture and death. There has to be a, a reason. Let's read more and find out what that reason is. Yeah. Well, the answer is easy. It's a four-letter word. L-O-V-E, love. Yeah, it's it's really incredible. And I think that was one of the things as I was researching a little bit about this talk about some of the work that you've done on this, Tom, that it's it's really amazing the more you learn about this, it, it really brings, I think, a lot of the humanity to the passion. Where so, sometimes just in either reading the Bible or even going to Mass or church services that it can still seem so ethereal or this is something that is just heavenly and God was so different. But when, when you get into the physical aspects, especially things, you know, as a, as a doctor, it's very interesting. Some of the medical things, it gives you a lot more understanding of the humanity of Christ. Well, Christianity is by nature an incarnational religion. It's in the flesh. God took on flesh. I mean, this is abhorrent to holders of some more spiritual religions, so to say, you know, Hinduism, Buddhism. But for us, the body is essential to who we are as Christians and, and who God is because he took on a body too. So it has a 
an eternal importance for us. We're going to have bodies forever in heaven. And don't you think uh, an understanding of the humanity or the human aspect of the of the crucifixion and the passion helps explain so many of the other lessons. You know, I always think about, the, uh, I feel for the priest when he has to read, you know, the, the verse from the gospel about husbands, wives obey your husbands. <laughs> yeah. Everyone gets uncomfortable when he says that. A lot to unpack there. <laughs> what, what follows that? What follows is amazing. And husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. So you could just substitute as Christ allowed himself this horrific torture. Are you willing to do that for your wife? That makes that discussion completely different. But yes. without an understanding yes. of, the, of the gravity of the passion, it's hard, to, it's hard to use that as a better understanding for that other verse. So it really is fundamental to our, really to our faith and our understanding, isn't it? I agree. Well, Tom, I'm really glad that you got reinterested in this. I know you had mentioned that you had kind of backed away from it because you doubted some some of the things you were teaching. How did you kind of get reinvigorated with this and have gone on to do so many of the things that you've done already? Well, about three years ago, a friend of mine, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, uh, who uh, was the dean of studies uh, or dean of faculty for Catholic Distance University, asked me if I'd write a course for them on that subject. And I decided on the name of the course being another doctor at Calvary because Dr. Pierre Barbet, a French surgeon, wrote a book in 1950 called A Doctor at Calvary. Well, I'm just another doctor at Calvary. And so I went back and did the research for this course, and I was able to tease out what I had taught before that made sense and what I had taught before that didn't make sense based on the extensive amount of evidence I found. And so you were drawing off of, as you had mentioned before, the earliest text from the Mediterranean about the crucifixion. Yes, there were there are many texts oh, spanning a, a over 900 year period from about 600 BC to the time of Constantine when he abolished it in the fourth century AD. Well, Tom, I want to hear more about the specifics of that. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we're discussing the passion and death of Jesus Christ with Dr. Tom McGovern, who, from his perspective as a physician, has done a lot of work on the medical aspects of the crucifixion. So, Tom, what did you learn in reviewing some of these ancient texts? The ancient texts mainly apply to crucifixion, but there were some things I've even learned that apply to what happened to Jesus before the crucifixion. So I'd like to actually go through those before we get to some of those. For instance, you know, when we start the Passion, we usually start it in the Garden of Gethsemane, where I've been now several times. We'll be going back again uh, during this Lent. And, you know, they talk about Jesus sweating blood, you know. The hematohydrosis, right? Yes, it's been called hematohydrosis, hemohydrosis, hematodrosis, a number of names. And when I used to talk about this, I used to trust what Dr. Pierre Barbet said in his book in 1950, where he said that the state of anxiety or stress is so great in an individual that the blood vessels in their skin burst and that the blood mixes in the sweat glands. That never made sense to me. And I went back in his book to see where he referenced that. And he didn't reference anything. He just wrote it. So as I learned in logic from a, a Dominican, what can be freely asserted can be freely denied. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I look under the microscope every day at dozens of skin slides. And I see no way that any blood is going to get into the sweat glands. There's just too many layers of cells in there for that to happen. So... Interestingly, from 1964 to about 2004, there were zero articles in the medical literature about patients with bloody sweat. And what, what do those articles tell us? Does it confirm that they mix together? The ones before 2004 or the ones after? Or the, the most recent ones? Well, the most recent ones are fascinating because there are a number of photographs. Uh, there are a number of biopsies that were done of the areas in these people from all over the world, ages seven months to 72 years. There's over 20 cases now reported since 2004. And what they show is that the fluid on the skin is like really diluted blood. It's like a, a watery fluid with some red blood cells, some white blood cells. When they do the biopsies of the skin, the biopsies pretty much look normal, except they did one biopsy while the bloody sweat was going on. And that one found something fascinating. What that one saw, and the, what they did is they took this biopsy and they cut a slice through it every like six 
microns, six micrometers, and looked at every single piece of that. And what they found is that there was red blood cells just in between the collagen fibers of the middle layer of skin. The middle of layer of skin is the dermis, and you know it best as leather. Leather is cow dermis. So they just saw these protein fibers separated and the red blood cells going through them, and as you cut further and further through, it came out the skin next to, not in, a hair follicle. There was no lining of a blood vessel. And what's really weird is none of these patients bruise. In other words, if you have blood in the skin, that's usually a bruise, or what we call petechiae, little pinpoint spots of bleeding. But none of these patients have it. So it's, it's really bizarre. But somehow, the blood is leaking out of the... the uh, blood vessels, which can happen. There's a process called diapedesis. Do you remember that word from medical school? That's a, that's a throwback. <laughs> yes. Well, what can happen is when the blood vessels dilate, the cells of the walls of the blood vessels actually open up little openings like a chain link fence, and the red blood cells can get out between those links and go out. Well, that, Tom, is there that connection to overwhelming stress and anxiety? That's another great question. Most of these patients reported, the first thing they notice is that they're wet. They've got this bloody fluid coming out of them. Now, some of them, yes, it was associated with stressful events. But with maybe half of them, it wasn't. So it's not a definite. Also, what's interesting is this could occur from parts of the body where there are no sweat glands. Oh, that's very interesting. Could occur from the nail beds, you know, underneath fingernails. Could occur from the tongue. Could occur from the tear glands in the eyes. So does the blood and sweat mix? Yes, but it's on the surface of the body that it mixes, not in the sweat glands. Wow. And so what do you think the, the writers of the gospel are trying to convey when they picture, they give us this picture of Christ sweating blood? Well, I think Luke is the only one who says it. Of course, he is the very fastidious physician mm -hmm. who is looking at details. And actually, the, the Greek words he uses in Luke 22, uh, thromboi hymatos, refers to like clots of blood falling to the ground. So the fact they had color, it looked a little thicker than water and was falling down, I think it meant to imply that he was under great stress, mm. which we know from the gospel. And interestingly, the stress probably plays into the event in this fashion. When your fight or flight response of your, your uh, you know, sympathetic nervous system is going on and adrenaline is released, all the blood vessels to the skin shrink, except those to the sweat glands. Why? Because you make more sweat. And where does the fluid come from? It comes from the blood. So, but it's still not a lot of blood flow to the skin, just to the sweat glands. But if you read through that passage in the gospel, you'll see that at one point, Jesus accepts the will of the Father. And other authors have said, and I agree with them, that at that point, the sympathetic nervous system, the adrenaline decreases. So the blood vessels to the skin increase. So that's when the bloody sweat probably increased even more profusely after he accepted the Father's will and this you know, adrenaline response wasn't going on. Well, maybe we should move from the garden to the next step in the journey. And I think it may be good to take just a brief break and we'll be right back. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where your hosts, Dr. Andrew Mullally and Dr. Chris Stroud, and our guests discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. And today, we're happy to continue discussing the Passion of Jesus Christ with Dr. Tom McGovern. Well, Tom, before the break, we, we were talking about Christ sweating blood in the garden. Let, let's journey through the Passion and, and leave the garden and, uh, and move on in Christ's journey to uh, to the home of Annas and then on to Caiaphas and talk a little bit about this next phase in, uh, in his journey. Yes, this is often kind of glossed over. We don't think too much of it. We want to get to the events of Good Friday morning and afternoon. But if you've ever been to Jerusalem, things are a lot closer together than you realize. And so they would have w walked about a mile downhill across uh, the valley on the, in the middle of Jerusalem and then up the sides of the valley, first to the house of Annas, the high priest, or the former high priest, and then to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the legal high priest. And at this home, this site, there's now a church called St. Peter 
in Galicantu, referring to the cock crow, of course, where Peter denied he knew Christ. And in this building, they're not absolutely certain it's Caiaphas's, but it, it fits very well because in the basement is a true dungeon. It's actually a pit. And the pit is about 30 feet below the house, and there is this three-foot-wide hole that's hewn in the rock through which you can lower somebody on this harness-like contraption of ropes down into the pit. At the time, it was the only way into the pit. There were no steps. You just lower someone in there, and they were there in the dungeon. In fact, it's uh, owned today by a French order of priests, and there is actually a large mosaic on the outside of one of the walls of Christ being lowered on this contraption into the pit. Mm. Wow, that's remarkable. Yeah, that's not something that we see from a Hollywood perspective, is it? No, no, it's not. And sometimes reality is stranger than uh, fiction, than our imagination. Well, what happened in this pit? You know, this is uh, while they're holding Jesus before they have a, quote, official trial of the Sanhedrin, the, the Jewish Supreme Court, the next morning after sunrise. So during this time, there were soldiers of the Jews, not to be confused with the, the Roman soldiers. And all of the gospel writers tell us what happened there. But Luke, again, the physician, adds a different Greek word. He, he uses the word durantes to describe something done to him. And, and the D-E-R in the front of that is the same root from which we get dermatology or dermis of skin. And durantes referred to uh, a thrashing, a cudgeling, a, a real damage done to the skin. And at one point, it specifically meant flaying the skin open. But by this time, I was able to ascertain it also had the colloquial meaning of just severe damage to the skin. And in fact, we know that Jews would would often use, they could either use a rod or a switch or leather straps. And we don't know for sure what was was used in this beating. It is, isn't it? interesting, though, from our Western, our American sense of justice and jurisprudence, he's, we would presume him innocent. This is before the trial. That's exactly right. And yet his torture began before he was convicted, for lack of a better word. Yeah, well, they didn't like him for a number of reasons. And in fact, if you look in the Gospels, the, the thing that brought on this arrest was in uh, John 11 was the raising of Lazarus. They, they couldn't shut the people up talking about him. He was more popular than they were. So what happened uh, down there, you know, he was slapped, he was beaten, he was struck. And when I used to give talks, I used to say, oh, the sweating blood really sensitized the skin. Probably that wasn't the case. But this certainly did prepare him for even more pain when the sun rose on Good Friday. Because just imagine, you know, being beat, you know, from head to at least down the thighs and the back of the legs, that skin is going to swell. There's a number of chemicals released during inflammation that make things more sensitive to just touch, let alone torture. So this really set him up for a great pain. Plus, he's not sleeping, he's not eating, he's not drinking. And I understand that the Shroud of Turin and what, what we see on that image can lend some insight into what happened here. You know, that that's right? fascinating. Yes, it is. Something I also learned in the last few years. And that is, you can see a number of different types of marks on the shroud that look like they could have been from beatings or whippings or floggings, not to be confused with scourging. And there's specifically uh, a number of marks that are about, oh, two to three inches long and about half an inch wide that would fit with what's called a verga, that would be the Roman road for a type of rod or, or, or a small branch, or leather straps that are completely different from the marks associated with the scourging, which we'll get into later. So there may well be evidence on the shroud itself of a different kind of beating. Now, do we know when this happened compared to the scourging? No, but it would certainly fit with what the Jews may have done that night before. And there's actually a tradition in Jerusalem of two scourging pillars. Really? One, yes, one being used in this pit and one being used for the scourging itself by the Romans. And in fact, there are two that are venerated at different parts of the world. One is in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and one is in the Church of Santa Presed in Rome, Italy. That's well, let's, let's move on in this, uh, in this torturous journey to the actual scourging, and let's talk about what actually happens there and, and what this means for us. 
the the scourging in Dr. Edwards' article, The Physical Death of Jesus Christ, they draw out what a scourge may have looked like with these, you know, wooden handle, or it could actually have had a brass or bronze handle, metal chains, and then attached to the chains, they have pieces of ankle bone from a sheep as well as lead balls. What I was able to find in my research is that the, the bones of sheep, they were only ever used by Greeks, never by the Romans. Really? Yes. But plumbatum, you know, plumbatum, does that mean anything to you? Iron, maybe? No. Plum? No, PB is the symbol on the uh, periodic table for lead. Lead. So plumbatum, there were little lead balls very commonly. So that's probably what was at the end of them. And so what a typical one would look like, uh, you'd have a handle. You'd probably have three or four different strips of uh, metal chain. And at the end of the chain, each chain, two little lead balls. And such things have been found and, in fact, reside in the Vatican museums that were found in the catacombs. Now, was it common for convicts or pre-convicts in this case or recently convicted to be scourged in this way or is this unique to Christ's torture? This is not at all unique to Christ. Many episodes of this going back at least to be over 400 years before Christ. And what's interesting is oftentimes, more often than not, they would be scourged while carrying their cross. We know Christ wasn't. And one of the ways we know that is in the Gospel of Luke, he's the one who tells us initially Pilate meant the scourging as his entire punishment. He hoped that would have been enough for the Jews. Wow. Well, remarkable. So we can move on to, not necessarily moving on, but change our thinking to maybe the actual physiology and pathophysiology of scourging. So the main thing, well, there's a couple things going on with scourging. One is the damage to the surface, to the skin, to the muscles. And the way it most likely happened, if we use the Shroud of Turin as a reference, and to cut to the chase, I believe that the Shroud of Turin is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ because any other hypothesis is more difficult to believe based on the evidence. So if it is, it shows over 120 paired little lead ball type marks. Uh, They're each eight millimeters across. And all these marks on the shroud are because there's blood there. You actually find heme, which is a breakdown product of hemoglobin there. And the thing with the shroud is it underestimates Jesus' suffering because only marks of blood show up. If you were hit and no blood was came out, it's not shown there's there. No mark. So it suggests that there was a torturer on each side of Jesus. We don't know what position he was in. He could have been standing. He could have been leaning over a pillar. Both pillars are quite short. So it wouldn't be surprising if he was leaning over it, like with his chest on the top of the short pillar. There are different heights because the angles of the blows are at different angles from each side, suggesting a different height torture on each side. But each time it hits the skin, it's going to cause bruising. You'll get welts or wheels that'll rise. You'll get bruises. You might get fluid building up in the skin and in the muscles. But even more profound than that is you have the same thing you'd have with chest trauma. I don't know if any, either of you have seen chest trauma patients. With like flail chest and other symptoms like that? That could happen. I mean, there's a number of things that can happen um, with the chest. Um, for instance, uh, if you have a lot of pain in your chest, it's really painful to take a deep breath. We call that splinting. That would probably uh, happen. You can get a pulmonary contusion. That means there's actually bruising on the lung itself. Uh, and sometimes you have so much damage in the lung that you start coughing and, and spitting up blood. That's a possibility. But with this damage in the chest and to the lungs itself, the lungs are going to start to collect fluid. And the cavity between the lungs and the chest wall will build up fluid also, making it more difficult to breathe. Tom, I find the muscles in my neck tensing just listening to you talk about this. What an, what an intense topic. If you've just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we're discussing and interviewing our very own Dr. Tom McGovern on really the pathology and the pathophysiology uh, of the passion of, of Christ. Tom, I've heard you give talks on this before, and, and I want to say there's something about uh, if the torturers were able to see an organ, this was some 
or m- maybe I'm misquoting you, but there's something about the, to to visibly display an organ through the torture. Uh, is there something there that I'm? I have not heard about that, but these were men who took great pleasure in torture. Uh, they were actually called verberatores, and we get our word reverberation from the same word where we get that. So they were trying to cause uh, a real amount of, uh, of uh, damage. Of, of damage. Yeah, now that I hear you say that, I realize I read it in uh, Bill O'Reilly's book, Killing Jesus. <laughs> uh, and he's, he's talking about these, these soldiers whose occupation, they were professional torturers, uh, and they were quite good at their trade. In fact, they were they were punished, and they were liable to severe punishment if they accidentally killed sure. the suspect before you know, before the crucifixion, how dare you? And when wow. we get on to, you know, how Christ died and why he died rapidly, you know, one of the main factors would be the severity of the scourging because you can lose so much fluid that it puts you into a state of shock. And shock is when you cannot absorb enough oxygen in the blood and deliver it from the blood to the organs to keep yourself healthy or alive. And it probably, I guess I'm, I'm filling in some of the blanks here, but probably sure. because of all the severe torture that Christ underwent before he was crucified, that's why he lasted on the cross such a short time compared to what was expected. Exactly, because uh, there are many episodes in ancient literature that talk about being alive for days on the cross. In fact, the ancient fathers of the church, second, third century fathers, often thought it was starvation that killed crucified victims. Wow. Well, Tom, we really appreciate you enlightening us on some of this, and I'm excited to talk to you more. We will be having a second episode on the passion and death of Jesus Christ that will air next week, where we will continue our journey through the passion and hopefully provide some good information for us to reflect on during Holy Week. Yes, thank you. You're listening to Dr. Doctor. Um, We've been joined by Dr. Tom McGovern. I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and we've been joined also by our co-host, Dr. Andrew Mullally. This is Dr. Doctor with Dr. Andrew Mullally, Dr. Chris Stroud, and Dr. Tom McGovern, and we are here with the answer to the trivia question. Yes. Today's trivia question was, what is a bezoar? Isn't that the, the monster in Lord of the Rings? Oh, yeah. I forgot about him. The one that fights on the way down through the fall from the Mines of Moria with Gandalf. That's well, not the bezoar you're talking about. That, that was actually the Balrog. But, you know. <laughs> you I know. would argue both of you have far too much time in your hands. <laughs> we do. We do. And we feel very sorry for you, Chris. <laughs> uh, and where would you find a bezoar and what should you do with it if you find one? Run. Run and don't look back. No, a bezoar is actually a solid mass of indigestible material that accumulates in your GI tract. But it actually reminded me of this article I read about London, that under the streets of London, they found a 70-ton fatberg. It was a collection of all the oils and things that people have been pouring down the drains, and it just collected and blocked up the the sewers in London. So that was like an industrial bezoar. Well, a physiologic bezoar (laughs) happens in people, and these can build up in their stomachs most commonly, sometimes in the small intestines, rarely in the colons. Have you ever seen a patient with a bezoar? I have, yep. There's... Especially as, unfortunately, you get to some patients without all uh, full mental capacity. Sometimes you pull interesting things out of stomachs, like uh, gloves and other undigestible food. I've never pulled bubble gum out of the stomach, <laughs> despite what they told me. Yes. What your mother told you growing up. How yeah. many years did it take for that to dissolve, <laughs> according to mom? Was That's it seven right. years or 17 or 107? Well, the most common bezoars are uh, made of cellulose. That's undigestible plant matter that... You know, humans, God didn't give us the ability to to digest grass, all the cellulose in it. Uh, But the ones that I heard about most in medical school are the trichobezoars. Trico referring to hair, Mm -hmm. or that is a hairball. So cats with hairballs, those are cat bezoars. And that might be from someone with trichotillomania. Yes, trichotillomania, that's right up my alley. That's people who pull out their hair. But they usually just throw it on the ground and don't put it Isn't in their Isn't there mouth. another name for a hair eater? Trichophagia. 
trichophagia. Or an onychophagia, eating your fingernails. Ooh. You know, we're all doctors here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what kind of patients you people see, but my patients don't pull their hair out and eat it. Um, <laughs> wow. So I want to do what you do. <laughs> so for all of my patients listening out there, I just want to be clear. I'm not telling stories about you. Uh, these are other people that these doctors are talking about. So, well, that's enough on Bezoars. Yes. We have a question from a listener today, Miriam Schmitz from St. Elizabeth Ann Seton, asks, is it true that you can get sick from the flu because you got the flu vaccine? Drum roll. Andrew? That is a great question. And the answer is no, you cannot get sick from the flu vaccine. This was not true in the past. In the past, they've used previous flu shots, have used live flu viruses, and even the, the nose flu um you know, they, they used to give the no spray for the flu vaccine. That was a live virus, but the injection is not live. And while you, you may get side effects from it, uh, you will not get the flu. I think it's very common. We'll see a patient who says, I don't get the flu shot anymore because a few years ago I got it and I got the flu from it. And we know that's not true. It's a very frustrating bit of sort of medical folklore, isn't it? Well, and it's, it's difficult because in the times of the year when the flu is rampant, when people are interested in getting flu shots, it's, it's out in the community uh, everywhere, and it usually takes two weeks for the flu shot to be effective. So it's quite possible if you get the flu shot late into the season when the flu is already spreading, then you may, you may well get the flu at the same time and, in fact, do get sick, but not from the shot. And the symptoms that the average person is likely to develop is maybe some soreness at the injection site, maybe a low-grade temperature, or maybe some a little bit of body ache or kind of a flu-like feeling, but it is not an illness and it's certainly not influenza. It's it's definitely not a reason that I would avoid the flu shot, especially after the flu season we, we just had with all the deaths nationally and the pediatric deaths. It's definitely something you'd want to talk to your doctor about getting, especially leading into the fall this year before the flu comes. Most certainly. Thank you. Yeah, even though the flu vaccine this year has not been tremendously effective, it still does something. And with all the number of people who get the flu, it's still having an effect, not as much as we'd like, though. That's correct. Well, thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor, where your Catholic doctors discuss medical matters of interest to Catholics everywhere. We are going to be back next week with another episode on the Passion of the Christ with Dr. Tom McGovern. And for now, we are going to be signing off. Thank you for listening to Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Andrew Mullally. And Dr. Chris Stroud signing off until next time. Remember, your medical decisions today can have profound consequences tomorrow. Choose wisely. Choose Catholic. Next week on Dr. Doctor, we'll hear the second part of our special series, Another Doctor at Calvary. Joined by Dr. Mullally and Dr. Stroud, Dr. McGovern will take listeners through the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ from a medical perspective. In part two, Dr. McGovern will focus on the way of the cross and what Jesus' death by crucifixion was probably like. Tune in for Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or never miss an episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Google Play. For more information, visit RedeemerRadio.com doctor.